Hello and welcome to another episode of our Hospice News Elevate podcast. I'm Aging Media Network Managing Editor Bob Holly, filling in for reporter Holly Bossel, who couldn't be here for this planned conversation. In this episode, we're going to be discussing hospice access barriers among underserved incarcerated populations. I'll be speaking to David Garlock, a national public speaker who was previously a hospice worker. He is a formerly incarcerated criminal justice reform advocate and reentry expert. Before we begin, a quick note. Hospice News is able to produce these podcasts thanks to the amazing people in the field. If you want to hear from a hospice leader, send us your thoughts. Want to come on yourself? Let us know. Also, if you're interested in sponsoring the podcast, shoot us a note at editor at hospicenews.com. Let's get to it. All right, David, thanks for joining us on this Hospice News podcast conversation. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing well. I definitely appreciate the opportunity to be on and to, to talk about hospice work and the necessity of it in different spaces and spheres. In case our listeners are interested, uh, where are we hearing you from? Uh, right now, actually, I'm in Dallas, Texas. I am down here for some speaking engagements. Perfect. Well, thanks for carving out some time. We're going to be talking about uh, healthcare in the criminal justice system, specifically hospice and end of life care. Uh, it's a really timely topic. Uh, and I had just saw this before we hopped on not too long ago. Um, healthcare in the criminal justice system was just a focus of uh, John Oliver's last week tonight uh, show. Uh, apparently, that was one of the most recent topics. Um, so I know that's pretty popular and in, in the spotlight now, but for our listeners who, uh, aren't familiar with you, could you maybe, uh, tell, tell them a little bit about yourself and, um, talk about your background as it pertains to, uh, hospice in prison settings. Yeah. So, uh, I'm formerly incarcerated. I spent 13 and a half of a 25 year sentence in Alabama. Um, I was able to get out of prison in April of 2013, so I've been out uh, over a decade now. But the way I got involved with hospice work in prison was the last three years that I served in Alabama, they had just created a hospice program. And that's still something that always blows my mind, that you have to have a hospice program in prison. You know, and just thinking about the, the the totality of that and like, okay, we're setting these people up to take their last breaths in prison. And um, it was probably some of the hardest work that I did while I was, I was incarcerated because, you know, as you're taking care of these men and preparing them to die, you get close to them, you know, yeah. and just having those conversations. And at times, we would just sit there with them for two or four hours. And it's just that personal connection. And a lot of times, if we weren't there, they could potentially be sitting, laying in this cell by themselves and not checked on for three or four hours, which in my opinion is very inhumane and a horrible way to treat somebody who's dying. Yeah. That, uh, that end of life journey, was it something that uh, you know, you developed that appreciation for over time. Is it something that has always kind of piqued your interest? Well, it was just something that, you know, just was put on my heart when they had that. And my mentality was if I was ever in that situation where I was dying in prison, I'd want somebody there taking care of me who wanted to be there and wanted to just spend that time with me and assist me as I was preparing to die. So, 
and, and really with my faith, you know, it's about giving back. It's about when you have opportunities to help somebody, that's what we're to do. Yeah. And your experience that you're pulling from, you know, you mentioned uh, end of life care in the Alabama system. I imagine a lot of these same barriers, these same trends and challenges are applicable across the U.S., really. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there, there's not enough um, care. There's the, the, the nurses that provide this. Uh, at times, some of them don't really have that compassion or real care. And so they're very lackadaisical. And a lot of the work that they do, and I mean, it's pretty sad when we have to go to the head nurse and let her know that some of the nurses haven't been doing the bare minimum for some of the men that were there in the infirmary. And it was really heartbreaking just to see the way that people were treated. Yeah. Tell me a little bit more about um, that treatment. You know, what have you seen as far as the conditions in which uh, incarcerated seniors access end-of-life care? I mean, like I said, I mean, in some prisons of, in Alabama, these individuals who are dying, they have hospice cells. And um, the nurses come in every, like, four hours. And if we weren't in there <clears throat> to help and assist these men, they would just be there alone. Um, I think another thing, too, is that there's there's not enough nurses trained for end-of-life care and really have that specific skills to do this work. Um, and then also, you know, funding. There's really not that much funding for individuals like that. Um, I do a lot of work in Pennsylvania where I currently live. And just to think, um, last year they spent $47 million on building a dementia unit at a prison that really will only help 12 people. And it's like you have thousands and thousands of people incarcerated, and you only think there's 12 people with dementia in the Department of Corrections. And it, it's just we're wasting all of this money taking care of individuals that could be easily released, sent home to spend their last days, weeks, or months with their family and not have to rely on the Department of Corrections to care for them and to prepare them to die. Who are some of the people who provide hospice care in prisons? I know it could be fellow people within the criminal justice system. You mentioned nurses. You know, what's that that system look like or what could it look like? I mean, what it could look like is actually having social workers that are assigned to end of life to really help talk through some of the things that the men are going to experience. Most places, you don't have anything like that. Um, I, I'd say another thing that is lacking is um, the ability to have these individuals have more visits. Yes, some places you can have three visits a week, but when we think about hospice on the streets, family members are going in and out all the time and just spending that time and showing the person how much they mean, how much they're cared for, and how much they're loved. And I think that's something that is definitely lacking in the prison setting. And a lot of times, the individuals doing most of the work in hospice facilities or the incarcerated men and women, because we're the ones that 
are in there constantly, you know, sometimes hours at a time with these men. Uh, in Alabama, I had a Department of Corrections job that I worked for six to eight hours. Then I did the hospice, and I do that for potentially four to eight hours after I did my DOC job. Yeah. Um, hospice News is a B2B publication that writes primarily for hospice operators, whether they're for-profit agencies, nonprofit agencies. Providing hospice care, end-of-life care in a prison setting, is that something that more of these providers should be thinking of getting involved in? Uh, and if so, you know, any advice for some of these agency owners and operators who uh, maybe want to do this moving forward? Yeah, I would definitely say that the more organizations and businesses that provide hospice care should be in contact with the Department of Corrections because I, I think outside organizations will be able to come in and they have different resources. The The people that work for these organizations are real passionate about hospice care and providing the best care for these individuals as their lives are ending. And so I think that is definitely necessary. And at, at times it's about getting through red tape, but I, I just tell these organizations, push through, contact your, your local Department of Corrections, contact local county jails. Because when we think about it, the over 55 population is about 40%. And it's the fastest growing population in the United States prison system. And it's not because we have 55 and older people out here committing crime ways or committing crimes in walkers and wheelchairs. It's because of these lengthy sentences that the the different counties and states have given to these individuals. And at times, there's no thought of redemption. There's no thought uh, about giving somebody a second chance. It's like, you have this life sentence. You are going to die in prison. And that's it. You mentioned red tape as maybe one barrier to entry for hospice providers. I imagine there are other common barriers as well, whether it's related to reimbursement for those providers. I, I imagine there's a lot of stigma uh, where some hospice workers don't want to go into a prison, for example. Uh, what are some of those common barriers that, that you've seen kind of preventing end-of-life care in a prison setting? Well, a lot of it is just the Department of Corrections not wanting outside organizations to come in. Um, I think some of that would be they don't want people to see the care that's actually given to the individuals, which I, I think there needs to be more conversation about um, because some of these uh, huge health prison organizations are getting humongous contracts to care for the folks that are incarcerated, but they're really not caring for them in the way that they should. So I think some of it is the Department of Corrections and the state not wanting people to come in and see what's really happening. Do you see that changing at all? And I, and I ask because, you know, I, I wear a lot of different hats here at uh, Aging Media Network, the, the parent company of Hospice News. I also do a lot of work with behavioral health business. And uh, within Medicaid, we're seeing a lot of different states starting to reimburse for uh, substance use disorder treatment services within the criminal justice system or uh, states paying for 
substance use disorder treatment services uh, during reentry. Um, so it seems like some of that is starting to change. You know, again, that's in the SUD space. But could something like that, if it catches on to other states, you know, have an impact for end of life care? If we're starting to have more of these healthcare conversations, I think it definitely will, and I think it'll have to be a state by state thing. And as more states begin to implement um, in things like this, I think other states will take note. So one thing that's definitely going to be needed about it uh, about this is having some academic researchers come in and just look at these states that are providing better care. And just to, to note it, you know, where you can have that data to push out to other states and like, okay, this is what's happening in Colorado. This is the successes and this is the how well the end of life is going for these individuals and how they're dying with dignity and not just dying alone and without support and aid. If I'm a uh, hospice worker, you know, I, I work for, let's say, a hospice agency here in my local market in Chicago. Uh, if I wanted to start delivering services uh, to, to the dying within uh, the prison setting, what are some of the unique skills that I might need to have? You know, what advice would you give me as I go into that setting for the first time? Um, I mean, the main thing is to go in with an open mind and to get any type of stereotypes that one has about people that are incarcerated out of your mind. Because once you go in there and you start having conversations with these men or women, it's going to blow your mind because society wants you to, to tell you that the individuals that are in prison are monsters and they're horrible and they can never change. But when you go in there and you see some of these elderly men who have been locked up for 30, 40 years, they would never commit another offense if the doors open for them. And so I think really just the thought process has to be changed. Um, and then really just the, the aspect of knowing that there's going to be different things that the Department of Corrections are going to make them do to open the door. So just be willing to accept the oversight of the Department of Corrections. Sometimes it's going to be something that you don't agree with, you don't like, but at times, you know, you just have to say, okay, this is important to me. This is why I'm going in here. So, okay, we're just going to work with this. And then potentially down the line, we can come back and have a conversation to see if things can change. And so going in, you know, it's really being able to adapt and know that nothing is permanent but change. One day you could do one thing and the next day they come back and like, no, you can't do that anymore. You have to do this. And so it's really just being able to be adaptable. David, I really appreciate you sharing uh, your thoughts and experience on this topic. I know the end-of-life care journey is, is deeply personal. Um, so without you know, divulging any kind of um, overly sensitive information or uh, somebody's like name, I'm wondering, to help illustrate the kind of impact that hospice services could have uh, in the criminal justice system, would you maybe mind sharing a story or two of 
you know, uh, an instance where you really felt like you were doing something special? Well, I mean, one instance that I always talk about was there's this gentleman, he was probably about 55 years old, probably weighed 80 pounds soaking wet. And he had just been confined to his bed. And it was one of the the cells, you know, that was actually across from four solitary cells. And this is in the infirmary unit at a prison in Alabama. And there's these windows that you could look out of his room and he'd be just sitting in his bed and maybe no one had been there for two or three hours. And I'm coming in and once he sees my face, he gets this big sheepish grin on his face and this guy doesn't have teeth. And so it's just this funny looking toothless smile. And it was just so powerful because he knew somebody was going to be there with them for the next four or eight hours. And at times we would just sit there and watch TV, but it's just the fact that he had somebody to do that time with at that point. And it just meant so much to him. Thank you for sharing that. We uh, we're nearing the end of our conversation uh, for this episode of elevate uh, before we wrap up any final thoughts on the ways to, improve upon hospice challenges in the prison setting or uh, just any other words that you'd like to leave our listeners with? I mean, I, I think we definitely have to have more oversight um, of the individuals that are doing hospice care and also the, the nurses and doctors that are providing just basic care. And we, we need people in there who are going to actually provide all the necessary procedures and just nursing that these individuals need. And and I think a lot of that has to go with their mindset and why they're doing what they do. Um, Another thing is, I mean, we need more people involved. We need more people talking about these issues because, uh, because as I said earlier, you know, this is one of the fastest growing populations in the prison. And we need to provide the care and the services that these individuals need. David, thank you so much for your time today. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to this episode of Elevate, the Hospice News Podcast. I'm Bob Holly, Managing Editor, Aging Media Network, a WTWH media company.